Today on The Journey with Steve DeWitt, a lesson from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about the importance of generosity. What does a spiritually mature Christian look like? Faith, absolutely. Speech, totally. Knowledge of God, on board. Loving, absolutely. Generous. And what we see here is that there is no spiritual maturity without generosity. Welcome to The Journey with Steve DeWitt, senior pastor and Bible teacher at Bethel Church in Northwest Indiana. As Christians, we're called to be good stewards of God's resources. And oftentimes, we desire to live a generous life, but just don't know where to begin. Today, Pastor Steve brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for a practical lesson on generosity. You can listen online at thejourney.fm. And right now, we're learning what it means to live a generous life from Pastor Steve with a message called Money, Jesus, and Me. For the past two weekends, we have sat on one particular individual who met Jesus and had this extraordinary moment that Jesus said, uh, wherever the gospel goes, people are going to tell the story of what this woman uh, did. And the, the woman's name was Mary. And Mary gave to Jesus a, a most extravagant and generous gift by uh, taking some very expensive perfume, extremely expensive perfume, and pouring it out on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. Last week, we asked the question, was the perfume worth more or less after it had been poured out? Which is a compelling question because in, in our way of thinking, in a, in, a, in a natural way of thinking, perfume is one of those commodities that once you've sprayed it, once you've poured it, it's like, it's done, right? So it would seem then to the financially oriented that what she gave now was worth nothing. And of course, uh, uh, one individual that was there at the scene made his opinion clear, speaks into it, his name was Judas, and says, what a waste of money this is, it should have been sold and given to the poor. Now, John adds the comment that he really wasn't interested in helping the poor, he was really interested in helping himself to the money that would have been in the bag if she had sold the perfume. He was interested in helping himself. So Jesus then speaks in and says, uh, what she has done is a beautiful gift and um, rebukes, rebukes Judas's perspective. And we see from that then that Jesus and God have a different way of looking at the worth and the value of things. And we saw last week that Jesus, when his exhortation regarding how we use the resources that God makes uh, available to us, that puts under our stewardship, is to make sure that we are, one, laying up treasure in heaven, Matthew 6, 19. Secondly, that we're working very hard to be rich toward God, Luke 12. And that we are trusting in his promise that he will reward every sacrifice and offering that is given in his name, Matthew 19, 27. And so we saw then there are just two very different ways of looking at worth and value, and Jesus and Judas give us the two paradigms. When it came to Mary's gift, Judas believed that the gift was now worth nothing. Jesus believed it now to be worth even more. From Judas's perspective, everything is what it's worth materially and financially. It's just the bottom dollar, baby. That's all I care about. From Jesus's perspective, worth is whatever it is worth in eternity. That was his bottom line. So Jesus and Judas, and we were challenged then to ask the question, in the way that I live my life, the way that I'm oriented, the way that I steward the things that God gives to me, who do I more resemble? 
Do I more look at life and look at things from Judas's perspective, or do I look at things more from Jesus' perspective? And a great way to know which you are is whether there is any resemblance to what Mary did, because Mary clearly was on the Jesus side, and her love for Christ led to an extravagant and a generous giving. Judas loved money. Mary loved Jesus. Which are we? Compelling question, I think. Now, today's message is, is not a message trying to convince Judas's to become Mary's. That was last week, and uh, if, if, if that's you, I'd encourage you to get online and listen to that message over and over and over again, because that's not the point of this message. This message today is for those who, whose hearts are like Mary, but who are kind of saying to themselves, I don't even know how to begin that. Like, what does that look like? What does what a generous life practically look like? So this is going to be an intentionally practical message. It's like part three off of John 12, Mary and her extravagant gift. But I do want to turn to a different passage that I think is very helpful when it comes to this whole matter of generosity, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, here's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. I will stop there. And what I want to do is just a very brief exposition on this, uh, on this passage and so we begin with the, with the bigger picture that Paul here is writing to the Corinthians. And when we did 1 Corinthians, you may remember the city of Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was the New, York, the New York of its day, kind of New York, Las Vegas of its day. And so these are wealthier Christians that are in this Corinthian church. And he writes to them about a fundraiser that he is collecting for the saints in the city of Jerusalem who, due to the persecution in Jerusalem, had come upon hard times, and they were in a, in a measure of, of suffering. And so he is collecting from all the various churches of Asia Minor this gift that they're going to deliver to the saints there in Jerusalem. Notice that he begins uh, to tell the Corinthians about this by telling them about the generosity of the Macedonian churches. Now, what's interesting about this is that while Corinth was wealthy, Macedonia was not. In fact, they were very poor, impoverished, and yet what does Paul say? They gave an extraordinarily generous gift. Notice a few of the things that he describes here. Their, quote, test of affliction, and again, quote, their extreme poverty, Yet in spite of this, he says in verse 2 that they had a kind of wealth. What was their wealth? A wealth of generosity. So they were financially poor, but in, in, the, in the category of generosity, they were wealthy. They were rich. 
So what he's doing here then is he's holding up these Macedonian Christians in front of the, of the Corinthian Christians and saying, basically, look what your poor brothers and sisters did. And notice the qualities of the giving of these, of these Macedonians. In verse 2, they gave out of their poverty. Verse 3, they gave beyond their means. Again, verse 3, they gave freely. That's sort of this happy to give it sort of thing. And then finally, they begged to give. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where there was begging going on in regards to the opportunity to take up another offering. In fact, I listened very carefully during this service, and I didn't hear anybody after the plates were passed the first time going, we want to do another one, please. Pastor Steve, we'll stay late. We don't care. We want to take another offering. Did I miss somebody shouting that? I didn't hear anybody saying that so much. But that was the spirit of the Macedonians. They begged for the privilege of give. They wanted to participate. They gave sacrificially. They gave happily. They gave urgently. And I think in these Macedonian churches, the offering was like the highlight of the service. Now, have you ever been to a church where the offering was the highlight of the service? I have. In fact, I, it came to my mind as I was preparing this. I remember being in Sierra Leone, Africa, which is one of the poorest, if not the poorest, country in the world. If you saw the movie Blood Diamonds and, and all of that, then you know about what that civil war, I mean, they have, they have next to nothing. And I was over there, we have a ministry that we support over there, and I was there as a part of that, and I was preaching at this Sierra Leonean, is that the way you say it? I don't even know. Sierra Leonean <laughs> church there. And so I'm sitting in the front row, and they, my memory is they announced the offering, and the way that they took the offering in the, in the, in the church was that they had the plates at the front, and every row in the church would stand up, would come down, would put their offering in the plate, and then they would go back. Now that, I think there are other churches that do that kind of thing. What was noteworthy to me about this was the way in which they did it, because as they got up to come down, they didn't, they didn't, it wasn't like a funeral procession, you know, where everybody's going like this and then dropping it in and walking back to their place. I actually dug out a picture, and it's a blurry one. I'm sorry. But this is from that service that I'm talking about, them coming down the aisle for the offering, and indeed, they were dancing. Now, some of you are like, well, they just like to dance. Is it possible that they like to give? And that maybe dancing and giving are two things that go together. I think we could use a little more dancing around here, don't you think? Now, some of you are going, oh, I, we have former Baptists here. I don't even know how. I wouldn't even know what to do. <laughs> but I think that would be rather fun to do sometime, don't you think? Just for something different. Have the plates up here. Give everybody an opportunity to do their thing on the way down. I could think of a few songs that I think could help us get there with that on the way down and take an African offering. How about before, before I die or retire from this place? We take one African offering. Could we do that? Now, I'm, I'm young, so this gives you lots of time to work on your moves for what you would do. 
I can kind of imagine we announce that we're gonna be doing it the next weekend and you know, the, the, the dance studios in Northwest Indiana fill up and people are like, oh, you have a ball or something you're going to? No, it's for the offering at church next week. I've gotta learn how to do this. But don't miss the point. This is the poorest church I've ever been in and it's the only church that danced for the offering. It's what he's saying about the Macedonians. They're the poorest and yet they had such joy and gladness and generosity in their giving. And he holds that out before the Corinthians, the wealthy Corinthians, and says, doesn't that inspire you a little bit? Doesn't that challenge you a little bit? And indeed, it does through the ages to us today. Now look at verse seven. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so now what the Apostle Paul does is he lists qualities of spiritual maturity. What does it look like to be a spiritually mature Christian? And these, I think everybody's on board with. Nobody here's got a problem with any of these, I'm gonna guess. He says, faith, my faith in God, my trust in his promises, speech, the words of my mouth, reflecting a mature faith in my heart, knowledge, a growing in my knowledge of, of, uh, of God and his work and redemption and all the rest, earnestness, a mature Christian is earnest in their faith, zealous for the things of God, passionate for the Lord's work. And finally, love, which of course is the supreme quality of all. Everybody's on board with that. That's what spiritually, a spiritually mature Christian looks like. I think even a Judas type here would be, yeah, I gotta probably say that's pretty good right there. That's a good, that's a pretty good list of what spiritual maturity looks like. Notice what Paul does, though, is that he adds to this now one quality that also is a part of spiritual maturity, and it is giving and generosity. See that you excel in this act of grace also. What does a spiritually mature Christian look like? Faith, absolutely. Speech, totally. Knowledge of God, on board, loving, absolutely generous. And what we see here is that there is no spiritual maturity without generosity. Let me say that again. There is no spiritual maturity without generosity. Now, you might think that I'm stepping on your toes right now because you might be saying to yourself, well, don't you suggest to me that I'm not a fine Christian man because I believed in Jesus when I was four and I uh, perfect attendance in Sunday school and I'm a regular attender at this church. So I hoard my money. Who cares? I'm not stepping on your toes. The Holy Spirit is. You can read it for yourself. How have we gotten to a place in the very wealthy American church where we divorce finances from our faith, and don't see generosity as an indication that I am somebody who understands the gospel. 
Indeed, this is where many people stumble, I think, and why whenever the church gets up or a pastor gets up and says, hey, let's talk about money, or you read the passages that Jesus talks about money, this is why people in the church get squirmy. And right now, some of you are squirmy, I'll bet. Now, you're very stoic on the outside, but inside you're like, ah, right? I think he's going to say something that challenges me or that I don't like. And let me point out why we feel this conflict beyond the plain reality that we love money. It's an idol to us. But a big part of this is a misunderstanding of what money really is from the, through the eyes of God. Let's just pause for a moment. What is money? Money is an indication of value, right? It's a, it's a piece of paper. It's a coin. Money is an indication of value. How I use it is an indication of what I value. And that is why Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined, not because what we do with money saves us, but what we do and how we use money is an indication of where our heart is. Did you get that? And this is why there's so much about it in the Bible, not because of the money, but because of the heart behind the money. And this is why spiritual Maturity always includes financial generosity, always. In fact, notice the reason for this. He points it out in verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now let's just walk through that for a moment. He begins by saying, for you know. If you're a Christian, truly, you already know what he's describing here. It's, it's, it's the most basic sort of description of the narrative of what Christ did. If you know John 3.16, you know what he's describing here. For you know Christ, though he was rich. Now, what are we talking about there? Pre-existent Christ, Christ in eternity past, second person of the Trinity, Prior to incarnation, prior to Christmas, in eternity past, he was God. Now, what's it like to be God, do you think? Is it an impoverished experience? Is God up in heaven uh, begging uh, around the place, hoping to scrape together enough to eat? No, he's God, right? He's God. All glory is his. All majesty, power, dominion, and all the rest we sang in the song moments ago. It is all his. And so the experience of Christ in eternity past was one of absolute fullness, absolute glory, total joy. He was rich. The richness of his experience as the Son of God. In spite of this richness, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now what Paul is pointing out here is, listen, folks, you ought to be impressed with what Mary did, but as great an example as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christ did. What did Christ give up? What did he, what did he give in terms of an offering? He gave it all. The guy that was the richest at the highest became the lowest. And that word there, poverty, is not a description, although we know that he was not a particularly wealthy man financially, it's more of a statement about his experience. 
as he became a man, as he humbled himself to take on human flesh and lived in this world with weakness, now the Son of God is tired. Now he's hungry. Now he hurts himself. Now he feels the human experience. This is an impoverishment of the Son of God. And on top of that, of course, I think primarily is the impoverishment of his passion and his suffering. And so to think of the Son of God being bound by Roman soldiers, being beaten by the authorities, having a crown of thorns on his head, being flogged by men that he created, and then ultimately being nailed to a cross and dying in an ultimate moment of weakness, giving up his spirit. That is the poverty of the Son of God. The one who had the greatest highest became the very lowest. And why did he do that, folks? So that we, who are the lowest, we are the sinners, we are the wretches, we are the rebels against God, so that we who are the lowest, the most impoverished, might become rich, to be given the gift of eternal life, to be given eternal bliss, to be given forgiveness, to be, to be given the Bible and the church and the Spirit and all these things that we have as co-heirs with Christ, the guy who was the highest becomes the lowest so that those who are the lowest can become the highest. This is his generosity to us, the generosity of the Son of God. As the old song says, he gave his life, what more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. And so Paul's whole argument here rests upon the generosity of Christ to us. And this is the reason, friends, there is no spiritual maturity apart from generosity. Because the spiritually mature person is the person who gets the generosity of God to them. And that reflects then in their life. They get it, they get it and they tremble at it. Tremble at what Christ has done. That is maturity. The spiritually immature who, oh yeah, Jesus came for me, la, 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 la. They are not moved in their heart and in their life to a, to a point where it connects with the other priorities of their life, primarily their money. And so they live in a kind of trite and superficial way where the gospel does not intersect with their billfold. Now, thankfully, we grow, don't we? We grow. And Judas's can become Mary's. And we celebrate that and rejoice in that. And I would bet even the most mature Christians that we have here at points in their life in the past, this maturity was not evident. But this is how God works in our life and develops us and grows us. And that is a thing to rejoice in when we see it happen. But I want to say it again. There is no spiritual maturity without generosity because generosity shows that I get the gospel. That's Pastor Steve DeWitt reminding us that generosity signifies a genuine understanding and application of the gospel in our daily lives. You're listening to The Journey and the first part of a message titled, Money, Jesus, and Me. Listen to the full message online at thejourney.fm or subscribe to our podcast. Just search your favorite podcast app for The Journey with Pastor Steve DeWitt. Well, today's message was a good reminder that our spiritual maturity is not just about knowledge, but about embodying the values of the gospel through our actions and attitudes, with generosity being a central part of that expression. And here on The Journey, it's because of your generosity that we're able to share the life-giving truth of God's Word each day on the radio and internet. As a listener-supported ministry, 
It's your generous gifts that help keep us on the air. So would you link arms with us today by becoming a monthly partner or giving a one-time gift? The number to call is 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or give online at thejourney.fm. And when you do, we'll say thanks by sending you an encouraging book by best-selling author Randy Alcorn, titled The Treasure Principle. It's a helpful and practical guide that will teach you how to steward God's resources well, live generously, and in doing so, find great joy in your everyday life. You can request your copy today when you call 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or visit thejourney.fm. And while you're on our website, be sure to join our mailing list to receive encouraging content and other updates from Pastor Steve and The Journey. Just scroll to the blue box at the bottom of our homepage and then enter your name and email. Well, that's all our time for today. I'm your host, Tim Svoboda. Be sure to join us tomorrow when Pastor Steve continues the message titled, Money, Jesus, and Me. That's Friday on The Journey with Steve DeWitt. Today's program was produced and furnished by Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana.